Have you ever really been messed up? Some failure or something like that, or um, and you got into a place where you, you just can't hide it anymore. And and I hope this has happened to you when you're in that place. And if not, imagine imagine in that place, the lowest of places. Imagine someone being there, right there, responding not with judgment, not with shame, but with love. If that's happened to you, I, I imagine that person for you feels like the safest person in all the world. You can do no wrong with this person. I have to say that Drew Miller is one of those people for me and always has been. That person you want to be with. Good parts and all. Um, James Taylor, one of the great songwriters in American history, you, you probably are familiar with him, but did you know that he's also a, a recovering addict and struggles with mental illness? Um, I, I did not know that uh, until uh, some years ago. I listened to an interview with him, and he was talking about being a senior in high school when this depression took hold of him for the first time. And he said at that stage in his life, his family had gone off the rails, his parents divorced. He ended up um, in a psychiatric hospital having suicidal thoughts. And later as a young man, still the same man in many respects, he decides to go to New York to make it as a musician and instead hits rock bottom and discovers heroin to cope with his pain. And, and folks, this, this is actually what drives an addict to something like that. Listen to what he said. He said, this is, how, this is what heroin was for him. He said, I wasn't looking to get high. I was looking to get normal. That's what drives people to addiction. And at one point, he was broke in, in New York, young, struggling musician, broke, strung out, and all alone in, the, in his apartment. And his dad called him from North Carolina. Um, his dad called him and says this, you don't sound too good to me, James. And James says, Dad, I, I can't lie to you. I'm, I'm not so good. His dad said, what's your address? 84th in Amsterdam, James says. His dad said, stay right there. I mean, right there. And 12 hours later, he was pulling up in a station wagon to take his son home. In the face of his son's brokenness, James Taylor's dad didn't look away in disgust, but showed up in love. Uh, his song, Jump Up Behind, Behind Me, is actually about that event. And I'll tell you that story to say this, that his dad was reflecting a greater father in that moment to his children. You see, when God sees us, he doesn't see us as good or bad. He sees us as his children, worthy, precious, beautiful. And so the main teaching that I want to try to draw out of Psalm 139 today is this. The creator of the world, let me get this, the creator of the world loves who you really are 
And, and here's what we see in Psalm 139. He wants you to see what he sees in you. The creator of the world loves who you really are and wants, to see, wants you to see what he sees. We're going to kind of make our way through this passage and asking some questions of this passage. The first one is, what does God see? When he sees you, what does he see? Well, he sees it all. <laughs> we see this in, clearly in Psalm 139. He sees it all. And God's response by the way, this is titled Up Close and Personal because when someone gets in your private space, that's usually kind of a scary thing. God is getting in our private space this morning. And for some reason for David, it's not scary. It's actually amazing. And we're kind of tracing why that is. So God sees it all and his response is verses 5 and 10. To lay his hand, to lay his hand upon David. And then verse 10. Your right hand will hold me fast. And so this, by extension, is how God responds to all of his children. Now, literally, what the Hebrew says there is, you have set me in the palm of your heart. That's what God is saying. That David is in the palm of his heart. Which means even more when you understand that, that for ancient Hebrews... They believed that, that one's heart was in the palm of the hand. So, as one Hebrew scholar explains it, David was saying that he will not fear or live in dread of the future, for he is sheltered in the heart of God. So when it says that his hand is upon us, David, and by extension uh, to us, God is saying, you're in my heart. You're, you're right here in, in, my, in the very core of my being. So when God sees you, what he sees is so precious. If your hope is in Jesus and you're a child of God, what he sees is so precious. He holds you in his heart always. And so this, this is why David can say such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He can do no wrong, you see. And, and this is why it's, it's, it makes no sense. And oftentimes Christians think this, this way about God, that if God were to really know me and see me, first of all, it's silly because he, he, to even question whether or not God knows you or sees you, God is omniscient, knows all things. But we tend to think that is scary because, um, well, if God truly sees me for who I am, he will not respond with love but with judgment and shame God will actually be repulsed. But that makes no sense because that would be the same as saying that God would respond with shame and judgment to his own heart. You see that? God does not respond with shame or judgment to himself, to the seat of who he is. But, you know, oftentimes that's not the way we think. I'm, I'm chief among you. Um, Really what I do when I preach is I'm, I'm trying to convince myself of the very thing that I'm speaking out loud to you. <laughs> Hopefully you can help me believe this too. Because typically I'm, I'm more like, um, well, well, Woody Allen years ago once said that my one regret in life is that I'm not someone else. It's supposed to be kind of funny. Um, there you go, there you go, good, good, loosen up. 
sanctified. That, that's that's kind of what I carry with me. Um, assuming if you, it's, it's this neur- neurotic sort of sense where I want you to know who I am, but I'm terrified that once you get to know who I am, you will run away. And, I have, and you know, it's very much a love-hate relationship with myself. And you see, in that moment, if, if that describes you at all, here's what I want you to know. In that moment, when you feel like you want to be someone else, the reality is, according to this passage, you don't see what God sees in you. At least start there. Begin to talk to yourself and say, okay, if I'm feeling this way, perhaps I'm not actually seeing the full picture of even myself. I'm not seeing what God sees. Because this text says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, second question that we're going to ask of this text. Where does God go? Like, what's God doing? Where does he go? And this passage makes very clear that God goes wherever we go. And hopefully you're getting the sense, clearly with David, that's, again, not a scary thing at all. We remain in the palm or the heart of God, even in the dark, even in the dark, scary places of life. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Let me read that again for us. This this portion of the psalm has become more dear to me in recent years. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Um, Barbara Brown Taylor uh, is a priest and and author and and gardener now in North Georgia. And I, I recommend, she's an Episcopal priest, I recommend her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark. I read that uh, as my, my therapist recommended it to me going through a really dark season not that long ago, and it was a balm for my soul. And, you know, one thing she does is she kind of traces how our culture teaches us to be afraid of the dark. You know, children, I don't have to convince you of that, right? There are scary things that live under the bed <laughs> in the closet when the lights go off, right? And what she's trying to do in this book is, is recondition us. Because those ghosts, those monsters, are a figment of our imagination. This passage is saying that God is actually there with us, especially in the darkest places. We have to be reconditioned to believe this. Knowing that God is the one with us and with him, we are always safe. That includes the dark places of our own heart. God is there too. He is with us. We do not have to be afraid. Another question, what does God know? What does God know? Well, verses 13 through 18, this is what we're told. God will not let the chaos win. This last year has been so chaotic. God will not let the chaos around us or within us win. And God is the one actually setting the time for our transition from this life, even. That's what we read there. Um, So Jesus says, in which, in, in Mark and Luke, or Matthew and Luke, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You see, that's that's irrational. 
Anxiety is irrational. Now, I have, I'm someone that struggles with an anxiety disorder, so don't hear me say that your anxiety is sin or wrong. It's, it's real if you struggle with that. But, but it is helpful to know, certainly helps me and comforts me to know, okay, wait a second, that's, you have to learn to talk to yourself, talk to yourself, calm yourself down. God is, it's not, the chaos won't win. Out there in my heart, God is not only in control, but God is love. This was very comforting to me when my mom died of COVID last November um, in Memphis, outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and um, healthy 76-year-old, um, good genes. I, I imagine would have lived another 15 to 20 years, and she, my, my dad and her both contracted it through church, and uh, my dad survived. My mom did not, and so it was, it's very easy for me to still kind of play the what-if game. You know, if this had happened or if, if this had happened or if this had been said, she wouldn't have contracted this disease, she wouldn't have died. And it's, I don't know if you've ever done that, but you begin to play that game when a loved one passes um, unexpectedly. What if? Did it have to be that way? And certainly the why question comes up. And, and that's, that one, I have to say, is more difficult. But this passage, well, I, I was in Memphis last week trying to comfort my dad with this very verse. In your book, verse 16, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. It's not random. It's not chaos. God will not let the chaos win. And I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not here to tell you, I mean, the older I get, the more I live this life um, as a follower of Jesus, the fewer answers I have. But I'm, I'm actually content with the why question because I know, I believe God is love. He's not just in control, but God is love. And if this is the time that is set for my mom, for whoever, I'm, I think I'm actually pretty content with that. Um, it helps the grieving. Fourth question, who does God fight? Now, here's where we get into where I said buckle up. This, this, um, I, I used to literally, <laughs> with, with these verses 19 through 22, you know, where, where it talks about hating people. <laughs> I, I, I used to, so one, Psalm 139 has always, for a long time, it's been very dear to me. And, and it was sort of my go-to passage when I would go visit someone in the hospital. And I would literally read every verse but those. I would just kind of skip over those verses. I don't anymore. It was easier for me to do that um, before I actually faced wickedness and injustice in my own life. Now these verses, I keep them in. And we're meant to keep them in. We're told there, God fights our enemies for us. Because they are really his enemies, not yours, not mine. And so when we get to those verses, um, what we're being shown, I think, more and more, what we're being shown is how to converse with ourselves and how to converse with God in those feelings, in those feelings that we have. And, and in my experience, um, it doesn't matter how holy the people look. The fruit is revealed in how people behave, 
And in my experience, it was the religious people that were that certainly have been the, the biggest thorn in my side. <laughs> and I think that's not uncommon if you look at the New Testament, especially. And so in the face of people trying to tear you down, just first of all know that their real war is with God. It's, it's not with you. And then this passage and verses like this show us how to talk to ourselves in those feelings that we have in the face of injustice, in the face of wicked, actual wickedness and injustice. I'm not talking about people that you just don't like. But when you face real injustice, which we all will at some point, this passage is sweet to, to show us how to talk and sit with ourselves in those feelings, how to talk with God with those feelings. I actually have two therapists now. I have a, a trauma counselor that um, uh, I'm, I'm now in the EPC House of Mercies and the first EPC church in ever in the city of Asheville. It's a church plant, as Drew said. Lord willing, we'll make it. Um, we'll see. But um, that church was born out of some ashes that led me to the EPC giving me a trauma counselor to go along with my other therapist of six years. And one thing my, my counselor is teaching me is, Chad, um, when those feelings come, like he asked me one time, he said, when, what, what happens when you're in this place where there's some PTSD around this place or these people? What happens? And I said, well, I, I gird up my loins. And he goes, that's the opposite of what you should do. So what I meant is I'm, I'm girding up my loins to try to like, Think Christian thoughts and not hateful thoughts. And this passage is showing us actually that's the wrong thing to do. Instead, we're meant, and this is what the gospel affords us, to put down the armor. To become very vulnerable in that place with those feelings. To sit with them. To converse with them. To talk them out with God. Friends, I'm telling you that is the only way the bitterness and the resentment will eventually fade. And we're given the recipe actually to set us free from the bitterness and the resentment that we can hold to. That's why these words are precious. I hope that makes sense. But what we do is, I heard someone recently say, we, we put those people who have been wicked toward us, who have wronged us, in our own like jail cell, in a jail cell of our heart. And it's not good for us to do that, to keep them there. And the only way to let them go and to let ourselves heal is to actually sit with the feelings honestly and to converse with those feelings with God. That's what we're given here, knowing that God is the one fighting for us. Lastly, what is God's concern for you? What is God's concern for us? What do we see here in this passage? And it's interesting that, that right after this violent language, it gets very tender. Notice this whole passage is really um, a window into the heart of someone. And so after it's very natural, after David has worked through some of the hatred that he has, he's staying in, this, in, in his heart and we see what God's concern is for us. It's right there. It's our own heart. And please hear me on this. Um, this, this also 
took me a long time <laughs> in a lot of churches to finally realize that God cares more about your heart than your actions. It's just the Bible screams at us. God cares more about your heart than your actions because your actions are just, it's just, a, it's just flowing out from what's in here. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount is about that. God cares more about what's going on in here, who you really are, than what you do. And so it's very natural for the text to end this way. And I want to read verses 23 and 24. This, friends, this, this is the, maybe the two verses to memorize if you don't have any part of the Bible memorized. It's, it's one of the handful of verses, I, passages I have memorized. This is, if you can't think of anything to pray, this is so sweet. This is the sweetest, one of the sweetest, safest, healthiest prayers to pray. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, literally, it says there, um, see if there be any hurtful way of pain in me. Notice, in you, in me. Not, it's not saying, show me if I did something wrong. Yeah, you probably did. <laughs> Just go ahead and answer that question. Let's get underneath that. Show me what created that in my own heart. Show me if there be any hurtful way of pain within me. And then take me by the hand and lead me into the everlasting way. I'm afraid the world, the, the world gets this concept better than the church, this idea of self-care, of soul care. And, and friends, you know what I would say? Read all those books. Listen to all those pack, podcasts, all the self-care stuff, self-help stuff. But as, as Christians, we can, trace, we can trace the goodness of all that to its source because, you know, it's one thing to read that book and just sort of try to conjure up this sense of I'm worthy. I have a sense of intrinsic value and worth. Why? Where does that come from? Where is it rooted? Well, Scripture tells us it is rooted in being made in the image of God. God doesn't make trash. And if you're a child of God, he's, God is holding you right here. There, there is where you root your sense of worth, your beauty, it is intrinsic because we are connected to the God, to the creator of the world. Um, let's end with this. So there, there's a time in, in Scripture, one of my favorite passages, when, when one of the early pillars of the church was realizing that Jesus is safe for sinners. And it was Peter. You can turn to John 21 when you get time and, and, and look at Peter. There's Peter after he failed big time. I mean, catastrophic failure. I would say on par with Judas, same in nature, same kind of betrayal. And follow that conversation that Jesus has with Peter. What Jesus is trying to do there is convince Peter that he is safe with God in his sin, in his failure. Uh, my counseling professor in, in seminary put it this way, and th here's the gospel. This is the good news. So if you haven't heard anything else, please hear this quote from someone else, okay? The Lord is safe 
not because he doesn't stand for righteousness, but because he has provided a cover. Peter would rather hide his sinfulness. Jesus would have Peter understand that that's what he died for. The entire bill of indictment against us, every piece has been dealt with. It's been nailed to the cross. And on that cross, you don't want him to miss a single thing. Or you have no atonement. Reformed people, though, reformed people especially, hear, hear this. The cross doesn't enable God to love you. Jesus died on the cross because God loves you. We see it in this text before the foundation of the world, before you could do bad or good things. For God so loved you that God sent his only begotten son to bring you home. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that um, you would enable us to, to just meditate perhaps on, on Psalm 139 more and to continue to ask it questions. And, and I do pray that you would enable us to see and believe what you see. Give us that power, Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.